right. Good morning, everyone uh, from the West Coast. Uh, good early afternoon to those of us joining uh, from the East Coast. And good middle of the night, if you happen to be up in Taipei for this event. Uh, I am Karas Templeman. I am a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the program manager of the project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region. And it's my distinct pleasure today to moderate a conversation with uh, Wendy Cutler, who is the Vice President and Managing Director of the Washington DC Office of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, today's topic is US-Taiwan economic ties. Uh, and I don't think it's too strong uh, a statement to say that they are at a crossroads at this moment. Uh, there have been some promising changes in the economic relationship over the last 24 months. In 2020, President Tsai Ing-wen lifted a ban on U.S. pork imports containing the feed additive ractopamine. Uh, she removed a longstanding irritant in trade relations with the United States by doing that. And uh, in return, last summer, the Biden administration restarted uh, bilateral talks with their Taiwan counterparts under the Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, or TIFA. Uh, and that was, uh, those were held for the first time since 2016. Uh, in more recent months, the two sides have begun additional discussions about strengthening the resilience of global supply chains, including the supply of Taiwan's most strategically important export, semiconductors. In this discussion, uh, Wendy Cutler of the Asia Society will comment on these developments and the prospects for deepening U.S.-Taiwan economic relations in this current geopolitical moment. Uh, before I turn the floor over to her, let me just introduce her. Uh, in her roles at the Asia Society Policy Institute, she focuses on building the Institute's presence in Washington, D.C., and on leading initiatives that address challenges related to trade, investment and innovation, as well as women's power empowerment in Asia. She joined the Asia Society Policy Institute following an illustrious nearly three year, uh, three decade career as a diplomat and negotiator in the office of the US Trade Representative, where she also served as acting deputy US Trade Representative at that point. Uh, during her USTR career, she worked on a range of bilateral, regional, and multilateral trade negotiations and initiatives, including particularly relevant for today's conversation, the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, U.S.-China negotiations, and the WTO Financial Services negotiations. Uh, she's published a series of papers on the Asian trade landscape, and she also serves as a regular media commentator on trade and investment developments in Asia and the world. So I can think of no one better at this particular moment to provide a deep and balanced perspective on US-Taiwan economic relations. And um, it's a real pleasure to have uh, VP Cutler with us today. Um, before I turn the floor over to her, I just uh, want to note to our audience that if you would like to raise a question, we will have a lot of time for a moderated Q&A after her after VP Cutler's formal remarks, uh, please type your question into the box at the bottom of the Zoom platform. There's a Q&A box, you can just type it in there and I will do our best 
uh, to get the, to your question and to present it to VP Cutler. Um, so without further ado, I will turn the platform over to uh, VP Cutler. Well, thank you very much, um, Cars, for the um, invitation to speak and your kind introduction. And thanks to the Hoover Institute, it's really my pleasure to be joining you. Um, you know, these days when there's an event on Taiwan, frankly, it's generally about cross-strait tension. It's about the semiconductor global crisis. It's about, you know, what Xi Jinping is gonna do next vis-a-vis -vis, um, Taiwan. Um, or the latest, it's about how the Ukraine situation affects US-Taiwan relations. Today, we're not gonna be discussing those. Um, maybe Karis will, but I won't be. I'm not the expert there. I'm a, a former trade negotiator um, and you know, really focuses on the economic side of our relationships um, with the economies um, in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, but to be honest, you know, all of these developments are in, um, you know, they're the backdrop of, of any discussion of closer economic ties. So I hope in the next 10 minutes or so, just to kind of give some brief comments on where our um, trade and economic relationship with Taiwan, where it's been, where it's headed, and maybe where it should be headed. Um, First, I would say that um, we already have very strong trade and investment ties with Taiwan. Taiwan is our 10th largest um, goods partner of two-way trade, that means. Um, and for Taiwan, we are their second largest trading partner. Taiwan exports to the United States have been growing steadily over the years, up about 58% from 2012 to 2020. And just in the past um, 11 months of this year, compared to the um, 11 months of last year, Taiwan exports are up 28%. I assume most of those are um, semiconductors and related electronics products. Um, tomorrow, our full year data will come out on the US, so we'll have a better sense of of you know, the 12 months, but for now we're still at the 11 months. And US, and excuse me, US exports to Taiwan, they're at a lower level, but they've also been demonstrating a steady increase. And for the first 11 months of this year, up about 21% from the same time period in 2020. Foreign direct investment also is a pretty good story between the United States and Taiwan. Um, you know, those statistics lag a bit, but in 2020, um, our stock um, of US FDI to Taiwan was about $32 billion, up 9% since 2019. And Taiwan's FDI in the United States um, at about $14 billion in 2020, which was up about 4% from 2029. But I think that number is going to grow significantly given the commitments from TSMC to build at least one fab in Arizona in the coming years. The calls to strengthen and take our trade and economic relationship, the relations to the next level have been going on for a long time. I mean, since you know the early days when I worked at USTR, there were um, you know, different fits and starts about how we should be doing more with Taiwan. For me, as a, the negotiator for the US-Korea Free Trade Agreement, 
um, I felt the pressure right after we concluded the chorus agreement, because I think Taiwan really felt from a competitive point of view that it was going to lose out given the U.S.-Korea FTA. So the push then, I think, was more for straight commercial and economic reasons. But over the years, um, the push has also been from Congress for political reasons and frankly, from Taiwan as well. Now, the administration has kind of um, embraced the strengthening of relations over the years, both Republican and Democratic administrations, but has largely resisted calls to do a comprehensive free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Um, I, I, I would just cite two, two, um, two reasons. One, Um, Frankly, we had a lot of trade problems and trade irritants with Taiwan, from intellectual property protection to medical devices to high tariffs um, and then, you know, to pork and beef and agriculture more widely. There were a lot of, um, you know, flashpoints in our trade relationship, and it was unclear through the years whether Taiwan was really serious in kind of cleaning these up and then agreeing to high standard rules, which would kind of set the, you know, the rules of the road and really constrain what they could do in, in these sectors. And the second, frankly, frankly, was, you know, concern about the relation, the, the reaction from the mainland. And as we were strengthening and trying to strengthen our economic and commercial ties with China, you know, there was a concern that if we went full stream ahead with Taiwan, would our ability to um, work with China um, decrease? And, you know, would they then, you know, be relying more on imports from the rest of the world and not the United States? The pork and beef um, issue in particular, and, and Karish, you alluded to that, was always kind of like the, 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 the tense point in the relationship. And here are just two reasons, like everyone, particularly in the foreign policy world, uh, you know, they, think, they look at trade folks and they say, why are you putting so much emphasis on pork and beef? And I think there are really kind of two reasons here. One is that for any free trade agreement to get congressional approval, given our politics, the agriculture community's support is instrumental um, and frankly, critical. And if the agriculture community is against an agreement, it's very hard to get it through Congress. There are many um, of our senators and congressmen, particularly in you know, the key committees that are in charge of trade, which are very focused on these issues. So that's you know, number one. But number two, um, being able to move on really sensitive, domestically sensitive issues like pork and beef um, foods, you know, rectomamine issues were for Taiwan, are really a litmus test of a country, of an economy's political will to really do what's needed, you know, to kind of counter the opposition and show real leadership. And, um, you know, absent that, you have to ask, if we enter into free trade agreement negotiations where so many more of these decisions are required on every product, you know, is that economy really up to the the challenge? And so it did become a litmus test. um, And, you know, I give President Tsai incredible kudos for just taking the issue on 
facing the domestic opposition in 2020, and then um, you know, being able to ensure through her work and her, her team's work that the referendum that was put forward to the Taiwanese people in 2021 did not pass. And so from my perspective, you know, she's passed the test there. This, this issue is behind us. It was politically difficult. And I think it does show that, you know, Taiwan is very serious about not only wanting to step up their economic and trade ties with the United States, but even possibly enter into free trade agreement um, negotiations. Um, in, in, and since that time, we've seen a real kind of increase in um, interest, particularly in Congress, um, asking the administration, you know, step up economic engagement, consider a free trade agreement, lay the groundwork for FTA negotiations. And if you look through some of the provisions in the bills, the Competes Act, which was just um, passed by the House and the U.S. Um, um, Innovation and Competition Act passed by the Senate, which is going to go to conference soon, has a lot of Taiwan provisions overall um, on all aspects of the relationship. But in the economic area, a real call for stepping up and laying groundwork for more economic engagement. And so this gets me kind of to the, the next part of my, my remarks. And that is, you know, what is the best course for that increase um, and strengthening and deepening in those economic ties. And here, you know, again, I'll, you know, a lot of folks are calling for the initiation of FTA free trade agreement negotiations between the United States and Taiwan. And from my point of view, I think we need to be really clear eyed about this prospect. And in that regard, I'm just going to share five points that I think we really need to think about um, carefully, both the United States and Taiwan. Um, of those five considerations, two, for me, I, I'll call realities of the, of the current situation, and three are challenges. Mm -hmm. So the two realities for me are, number one, President Biden is not doing trade agreements right now. Um, he has made it clear that he's focusing on um, the domestic agenda, um, that there's a view that if we were going to do trade agreements again, they'd have to look very different than previous trade agreements, including a greater emphasis on worker-centric provisions, um, on um, um, incorporating environmental concerns, and really provisions to work for the American middle class. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, the two active FTA negotiations under the Trump administration, one with the United Kingdom, the other with Kenya, have both been put on hold. Um, and there's really, uh, it appears to be little appetite um, for um, you know, proceeding, although uh, there does seem to be some activity, particularly with respect to the United Kingdom, um, and maybe in the coming months, we'll see a restart of those negotiations. I'm not sure. On Kenya, it seems to me that we may see some kind of announcement, which was alluded to last week by Deputy USTR Sarah Bianchi, about some kind of path forward with Kenya, maybe short of an FTA. Mm. But so number one, I think we just need to keep that in mind. Number two, 
There is no trade um, promotion authority now, TPA. And TPA is the legislation um, that expired um, last year ago, July, under which Congress basically provides to the administration negotiating objectives. um, And once those objectives are achieved and serious consultations are held, um, the Congress would you know, vote on an agreement without amendments up or down. That legislation is not in place. Now, it's not impossible to conclude a free trade agreement without trade promotion authority. You just need to secure um, the, the majority from each house, from the House and from the Senate. The House, it's, it's, it's easier to bypass TPA because they can set up a rule that looks like TPA. The Senate gets it's a little more complicated. Now, when I raise this point to you know, my friends, certain friends who are advocating for a Taiwan FTA, they respond and they say, well, look, there's overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress for a Taiwan FTA. So not really a problem. And here, based on my experience, I would just say it's very, it's very different to send a, sign a letter as a congressman or a senator urging um, the administration to enter into free trade agreement negotiations and then actually vote for in favor of the agreement the administration brings home if the concerns of your constituents have not been met. And so I don't equate just signing a letter with that means, you know, let's check the box that Senator, you know, supports the agreement. For certain members, it it does mean that. But I guess my point is you can't just say 150 members signed that letter, so we have 150 votes. It's a lot more complicated um, than that. Now, the three challenges I see in proceeding, um, one is that FTA negotiations are not easy. They're a hard slog. They involve many, many issues. Um, People kind of focus on tariffs, but um, they include everything from customs to services to labor, the environment. Um, And now, and I'll get to this in a minute, even currency manipulation. Mm. And so, um, you know, they're not easy. And I've seen some foreign policy types when they talk about the prospects of a U.S.-Taiwan FTA, they say, oh, this will be an easy negotiation with Taiwan. I can tell you, based on my experience, no FTA negotiation is easy. Now, I'm not saying that's not a reason to do it, but I think it's, it, you know, there's a reason to be very clear-eyed if you're going to undertake um, such an initiative. And here, you know, let's just get back to agriculture. Why Taiwan's tariffs are pretty low on industrial products. Um, They do have a pretty high tariff rate, I think an average tariff rate of 9% on agricultural products. And it's a very politically sensitive um, sector for Taiwan. And so I suspect that the agriculture issues would be very difficult. Another challenge is that there are still existing bilateral bilateral irritants um, in the trade relationship. And the way I always measure this is annually, the USTR puts out what's called the National Trade Estimates Report. Um, In the old days, each country or or economy would count the number of pages um, that were devoted to all of their um, bad, bad behavior items. 
Um, Taiwan um, in 2020, 2020 or 2021, um, excuse me, the new, the, the next one, the next NT will come out in April. But for 2020, 10 pages um, of Taiwan barriers, right? Everything from tariffs to investment restrictions, medical device um, approvals, copyright legislation, et cetera. And I'll be the first to say that Taiwan has made incredible progress in inroads um, through the years in addressing a lot of the concerns of the United States in all of these areas. But my understanding is it's still kind of a work in progress. And then I would add on the challenge, and I mentioned, I alluded to this before, of currency manipulation. And just in December 2021, the Treasury Department in its annual, um, not annual, semi-annual congressionally mandated um, currency manipulation report, it did watch list Taiwan. Taiwan um, did apparently meet all the criteria for for being labeled a currency manipulator, but Treasury didn't go that far. And the only reason I raise this is because under the USMCA, the new, the new NAFTA, um, currency manipulation provisions are now kind of a standard feature of US free trade agreements. And so this is kind of another area that could you know, present some challenges in terms of Taiwan, um, you know, enthusiastically agreeing to take on, you know, tough provisions. And then finally, the challenge I would highlight, and probably the one that, you know, a lot of, you know, folks who are watching this are probably going to say, why don't you raise this one first? And that is kind of the elephant in the room. And what would the China response be? I will say, I think it's less of a concern now in the U.S. than it was, you know, in, you know during the years I was at USTR. But it's still something that any administration needs to take into consideration. You know, if, if you think China's just going to respond in the trade lane, does that mean they'll withdraw from the phase one agreement if we announce, you know, FTA negotiations with Taiwan? Would they stop buying our agricultural um, products? Would they start harassing U.S. companies? Or would it all just kind of, you know, would they just make a lot of noise and just kind of live with this? And some people respond to this and say, well, you know, Taiwan did an FTA with Singapore and New Zealand in 2013, so it'll be the same with the United States. And I would just say it, our relationship's kind of at a different point than it was in 2013. And my understanding, both with Singapore and New Zealand, they got the green light from China to go ahead before they entered into these negotiations. So, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be um, very negative about the prospects, but um, I just think it's important that folks are clear-eyed um, about the challenges and the realities. I don't think it means of um, U.S.-Taiwan FTA negotiations are impossible, but I just think it's complicated. And so when I think of strengthening our economic relations now, particularly given the long time frame an FTA would take also, um, I'm pretty impressed with what the Biden administration, you know, their approach. And basically the way I see it right now, they have three interministerial, interagency dialogues going on with Taiwan, one by USTR, one by state and one by commerce. 
And if you add up these three, I think that is a pretty robust agenda. Now, just briefly with respect to the USTR um, venue, this is not a new one that the Biden administration um, created. This is the TIFA that Cars um, you know, referred to at the beginning. It was created I, when I was preparing for this um, remarks, I couldn't believe it, it started in 1994. So it's, it's, it's almost 30 years old. Um, I led a number of these when I was at USTR. Um, it's kind of gone through fits and starts. And when the United States got angry at Taiwan for not opening up its pork market or not doing something else, you know, not making enough progress, it kind of put these meetings on hold. And during the Trump administration, um, the TIFA was never held. But last June, um, the TIFA was held at a very senior level, um, made, you know, very positive announcements coming out of both sides with progress and a number of important issues like medical devices and trade secrets, et cetera. Um, they also talked a lot about supply chains. And, they, and, I, and then something that I think is important, particularly when we think about it, uh, prospects of an FTA, they established a new working group on labor, which was gonna focus on combating forced labor in supply chains. And I think this is important because this in any, um, perspective FTA with Taiwan or any other economy under this administration, there's going to be a real, um, again, focus on the worker-centric provisions, labor rights, um, and, um, you know, forced labor, um, child labor, slave labor, etc. And so I think if I were in Taiwan's shoes, um, I think it's it's a real opportunity for them to show the administration how far they can go in this area, because the administration will want to use whatever FTA they do, or you know, assuming that they 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 go forward with an FTA, they'll want to use um, that agreement as a model to show the world that there's a new template, and that will need to include very strong labor provisions. Mm. So that's number one dialogue. Number two, the State Department has a dialogue. Let me see if I can, it's called the EPP, the Economic Prosperity Partnership. This was created during the end of the Trump administration, but the Biden team met towards the end of last year with their Taiwanese counterparts, talking about global health, about 5G, science and technology, supply chains, investment screening, infrastructure and energy. And that was chaired on the US side at a very senior level, the Undersecretary of State. And then if that wasn't enough, the Commerce Department has gotten into the act um, in 2021. They created their own kind of dialogue initiative, the Technology, Trade and Investment Collaboration Framework, where they will be really focusing on strengthening critical supply chains and commercial ties between you know, the companies involved in supply chains, as well as promoting foreign direct investment. So with that overview, I'm just gonna sum up now and I'll turn it back to Karas. I, I think um, there is reason to be optimistic here. There is robust economic engagement between the United States and Taiwan. I don't think the, the USTR state and commerce dialogues um, are all that's going on between um, our two economies. 
We also cooperate in, in APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. And I would note that the United States will be hosting that in 2023 in the United States. So I think there'll be opportunities for more collaboration between the US and Taiwan during our host year. And we're also cooperating in the World Trade Organization as we both have a number of um, overlapping common interests, including with respect to negotiations on e-commerce and on an effective pandemic response. Um, so again, the question is, is this sufficient? You know, is there an expectation we need to do more? Um, and I would just want to conclude with, um, you know, just something based on my experience, again, as the lead negotiator for the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement negotiations. And that was, um, Chorus will be um, celebrating its 10th anniversary of, of, of being in effect um, in um, this March. But it came into effect in 2012, but the first version was concluded in 2007, and it took five years just to get it through Congress. And the only reason I raise this is because Korea was a strong ally and there was a lot of political will in Seoul to make this agreement happen. And yet those negotiations were some of the most complicated, controversial and kind of acrimonious talks um, and, you know, heated, but, you know, we came to an agreement at the end, but they were not easy, you know, by any, any measure. And so it's not just enough to say, you know, we're partners, there's political will. Mm -hmm. um, I think, again, um, if we're going to like jump into an FTA, we all need to be kind of clear eyed and ready for the challenges um, that will be um, that the challenges and realities um, of the situation. So back to you. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Wendy. That was a tour de force. You managed to cram in a lot of material and synthesize it very well on what's a, a very complicated topic that not a whole lot of people have the expertise that you do on. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I want to start out with a question about, um, well, actually to note that in addition to the pork issue in Taiwan and, and before that the beef issue, so these ag issues that have been a longstanding irritant in U.S.-Taiwan ties, um, the uh, uh, American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan publishes an annual white paper that documents a long list of uh, challenges or problems that they uh, they present this to the Thai administration or whoever's in power and, and advocate for ways to resolve these issues. And the most recent white paper in 2021 actually noted that the Thai administration had resolved a record 13 of 92 issues. Uh, and had made a really good progress on another 23 of those 92 issues. And so, uh, and in fact, the last time I was in Taiwan, I had a meeting at MCHAM and they uh, were, the, the messaging out of there was very positive that the Thai administration had, uh, it taken them a while to get to the, the uh, addressing some of these issues, but they had made a lot of progress in the last couple of years. So the, the ractopamine issue seems to be the tip of the iceberg here. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering, uh, given the, the willingness on the Taiwan side to be a, a good partner in these uh, talks, uh, what do you think the other sticking points are going to be in uh, the, the now three uh, different agencies in the US government that are talking to their Taiwan counterparts? What are the big issues from your experience that come up every time there's a, a meeting in these? 
You mean like um, specific trade issue areas? Yeah, which which issue yeah. areas? So I think just the buckets would be agriculture. And remember, in a free trade agreement, you're really you not only do you have to get rid of the non-tariff measures and you know make sure any measures taken are based on science and not just you know to close the market, but also you need to bring down the tariffs mm -hmm. and um, or significantly expand the quotas. And so I don't know enough about the specific products in Taiwan, but like just take the issue of rice which at least based on my negotiating experience with Japan and Korea were two of the, you know, the most sensitive, um, the most sensitive product. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm sure you could look and, you know, there's probably a lot of other, those types of products where there would be a lot of, you know, concern. Um, now in trade negotiations, just because you have tariffs, it doesn't mean on day one, when the agreement comes into effect, you have to eliminate all those tariffs, right? You can stage in the elimination. And that's what those negotiations are about, where Taiwan would probably want a very long staging process and the U.S. would want shorter. So that's one area. I think the IPR, intellectual property protection, is just another area. And then I hear about like um, copyrights, um, you know, that I guess... Taiwan has amended its copyright law, but there still are some concerns. Um, you know, a lot of times in, in any economy, it's not just it's not just passing the law or putting the regulation into effect. It's like, how is it being enforced? And is it really working? Or, you know, are there, you know, um, and so that becomes very kind of important as well. But I did know that the trade secret issue, which used to be very controversial between the United States and Taiwan, seems to have been resolved, or at least USTR highlighted that area as an area of major progress. Um, and then, you know, at least when I work with Taiwan, we are hear always hearing about medical devices and pharmaceuticals. I can't say I'm up to date there, but that has to do with with approvals and transparency um, and just, you know, getting less about tariffs, more about kind of the regulatory process and transparency and fairness in the regulatory process. That's very hopeful. Yeah, on on the trade secret issue, the, the most recent Amchan paper actually mentioned that the judiciary in Taiwan had changed their procedures uh, to preserve trade secrets in court hearings. And um, they had, uh, it was a pretty, a pretty drastic step from what they had been doing before, a significant uh, shift in behavior there. So there's been, I, I think, some real progress on that issue, as you noted. Um, I want to follow up with another question, um, actually, to, to shift in a slightly different direction and, and to talk a little bit about the TPP and the CPTPP. Um, so uh, the comprehensive... I can never remember CPTPP. <laughs> progressive. The Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is the successor to the TPP. Uh, it at this point does not include the United States, but does include all of the other original uh, members who negotiated the TPP, uh, including Japan, Canada, Mexico, and Australia. Uh, and last September, both the People's Republic of China and Taiwan applied you know, in very close succession to adjoin, uh, to join the CPTPP. Uh, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on the possibility that China might actually be admitted. Um, is this just a symbolic step where they're, they're 
kind of using this for propaganda value, or is there actually a, a possibility that, say, Japan and Australia might uh, relent in their opposition to Chinese accession? Uh, and then, uh, related to that, what are the, what are Taiwan's chances if the PRC joins, or if they don't? Uh, does that affect Taiwan's prospects at all? Well, we, that could be a subject of an individual webinar, but I'm going to give yeah. you kind of the short answer. I mean, my view is the United States, we need to take China's application to join CPTPP very seriously. They've been looking at this for many years, even when I was involved in the negotiations. Um, it was clear that they were reading the agreement, translating it, trying to understand what it might mean for them. And so, you know, I hear you know, certain, certain observers say, well, you know, they'll never be able to live up to the state-owned enterprises or digital or labor, so we don't need to take this seriously. It will never happen. Mm -hmm. And my response is that is not the, the right way to look at this. Mm -hmm. I think China is serious. Um, I do think that they, they want to join. And the, the distinction I also always emphasize is there's kind of the front end and the back end, right? So the front end means when the negotiations start. And for the, in terms of the procedures for the CPTPP, that means the establishment of a working group. And once that working group's established on a country's accession and um, you know, the negotiations have actually begun, and so they could, there's no timeline, right? They could take a year. Um, and, you know, the UK is the first um, exceeding country, a working group has been established. And I think the prospects are good that by the end of this year, the UK will be done with the succession negotiations. Oh. But for a country like China, it could take years and years. But once the negotiations start with a country like China, um, and given their economic ties and influence over the other TP, CPTPP members, um, I think they're almost, they, they will gradually become almost like a de facto member, even if the negotiation isn't concluded. I think they'll observe more meetings when the countries sit around and want to update the rules, you know, China might be brought into those conversations. And so I think we need to take it seriously. Um, for the purpose of our discussion today, I'm often asked, like, why did China join, you know, when it joined? And some foreign policy types always like to think, well, we announced AUKUS the day before, and the next day, within 12 hours, China announced it wanted to join CPTPP. My personal view is, and I have no, I, you know, no one knows the real reasons. I, I think that's coincidence. Mm -hmm. And what I have, you know, what, what, what people are saying, what I have heard that, China was very concerned that Taiwan was, you know, being assertive, kind of talking to all the uh, many of the other CPTPP countries, and they were worried that Taiwan might apply before them. And so they applied, and then six days later, Taiwan applied. Hmm. Um, and now the T CPTPP members need to decide what are the next steps? Are we going to establish, you know, a working group? Um, for China and Taiwan, very complicated decisions. You know, a country like Japan has come out and said, we support Taiwan's accession. Um, other countries have just, you know, kind of said, well, you know, anyone who can live up to the high rules, they should be able to join. Um, but it's a very complicated decision. 
And on top of it, I understand China's putting pressure on certain CPTPP members not to even consider Taiwan's application. So these are going to be very sticky, controversial, way beyond trade decisions that are going to need to be made by individual governments of the CPTPP countries. There will be some, as you mentioned, like Japan and Australia, who are going to be um, probably more reluctant to welcome China's participation. But I just think that over time, it's going to be hard for them to, um, you know, to block the establishment of a working group, particularly given their strong economic ties with China. And frankly, given the absence of the United States, not only in this agreement, but more broadly, you know, in the region, even though that will shortly change with the announcement of the um, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework by the Biden administration. Great. Um, I want to follow up on that, but first I want to uh, give uh, our senior fellow, Larry Diamond, who's also on the line here, an opportunity to pose a question. Uh, Larry? I have a separate question, but I want to follow up on that too. And uh, good morning, Wendy, and thank you so much for this uh, incredibly lucid and informative presentation. I wanted to ask you uh, what it means for the U.S. Uh, to take China's application seriously. Um, potentially, there are two implications of that. One is that we try and use whatever diplomatic engagement or to put it crudely muscle we can to keep China from actually joining the CPTPP. And the second is that we make a renewed bid, which means a domestic political bid uh, to try and mobilize uh, an American application. Um, so did you have anything in mind in the first uh, basket? And in the second, um, it just seems now uh, in the era we're in, the populist era we're in, that something this far reaching is just absolutely dead uh, in terms of um, a political mechanism uh, or a political pathway for the US to ultimately apply for membership uh, with the necessary congressional support. So in answer to the second half of this, do you see any prospect on the horizon politically, that the case could be made for the U.S. seeking to join uh, TPP and putting it to the Congress? And, you know, who's making that case and how would it be made? Well, those are great, great questions, Larry, and good to see you. Um, you know, we're not a member so of the CPTPP. So in terms of your first question, when I say take it seriously, I don't mean like we should be out there saying we oppose Chinese membership. I think China would turn around and say, who cares what you think? If you yeah. want, you know, if you want to offer your opinion, why don't you bid? Um, I could just, you know, I think it would be like a really downward spiral, you know, back and forth unneeded. I mean, privately, I'm sure there are discussions going on between um you know, the leaders, the foreign ministers, the trade ministers of the CPTPP countries sharing with the United States what's going on. And, you know, the U.S., I think, privately can express its views. But again, 
we're not members. Like we lost our right to kind of influence or block this process. Um, I'm sure a number of the countries now probably really miss us because these are really tough political decisions for them to take. Um, with respect to your second question on rejoining CPTPP, I mean, I'll just go back, you know, to what I said before that Biden's been pretty clear. He doesn't want he doesn't want to do trade agreements. Um, but interestingly enough, unlike Trump, he hasn't taken CPTPP totally off the table. In fact, what he said, if you really read his comments, are more that CPTPP is outdated. It doesn't reflect the realities of, um, you know, of, of the current situation domestically, internationally, et cetera. So in my humble view, if we were ever going to rejoin, and I realize this is a stretch and the politics aren't there, it, we would need to seek revisions. And I don't just mean updating the digital trade chapter you know, to reflect technological developments. I mean, looking at what worked for the United States and securing bipartisan approval of the USMCA when that was brought to Congress under the Trump administration. And are some of those provisions, like I mentioned, currency manipulation or, um, or stricter rules of origin on autos, um, you know, are any of those provisions, you know, should we look at them and maybe add them? And then are there certain aspects of, of CPTPP, certain provisions that frankly, we're not even, we're no longer interested in. And here, um, this investor state dispute settlement mechanism is one that, you know, Republicans, you know, basically told Obama, if ISDS wasn't in that agreement, they'd never vote for it. Well, they voted for the USMCA without it. So, you know, things are changing. So I think if you could maybe shape this agreement more as, um, you know, one that addresses the concerns of this, you know, workers, middle class and citizens and somehow advocate those changes, which could also work for the CPTPP countries, you know, there is, you know, there could be a way forward. Um, and, uh, you know, let's be honest, I think the geostrategic um, elements or, or rationale or reasons for joining will become, you know, greater um, as China gets more serious. But when, you know, my view is having worked on not only negotiating trade agreements, but getting in them through Congress, the geostrategic arguments are helpful, but they generally don't take that agreement over the finish line unless the economic provisions are tight and reflect, you know, what what you know the senators and congressmen want. Great, um, thanks for that, Wendy. Um, I want to follow up on uh, a point you raised earlier, which is the Biden administration uh, is planning to unveil an Indo-Pacific economic framework. Uh, over the next uh, next within the next month, it sounds like. Do you have a sense of what that would look like in practice? And are there areas where Taiwan is well placed to uh, play an important role in that framework, um, along with uh, and strengthen economic cooperation with the U.S., but also other partners and allies in the region? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, is an initiative that the Biden administration now is busy, busily finalizing the details for and should be unveiled in the region in the coming um, weeks or month or so. And again, I think it, it, it's critical because the Biden administration has realized that if we're gonna be quote unquote back in Asia, you know, 
we're going to need an economic agenda as well. That's what Indo-Pacific countries care about. Um, that's what they're interested in. And while they like the security and political ties, the, the relationship is incomplete without a strong economic component. But given our politics, we can't offer them trade, right? So we can't, we can't offer to go back in the CPTPP and many countries in the Indo-Pacific, that's exactly what they would prefer. So what the administration is trying to do is kind of everything but trade liberalization. So can we put together an initiative that includes trade facilitation, includes you know, digital provisions, supply chain resiliency, um, an environmental component, export controls, investment, bring this all together in an initiative. And if we package it correctly, this could really be impactful for the region. And, you know, that's what, you know, they should be unveiling. Um, you know, some of our partners are, they want us back and they want us to have an economic agenda in the region. So they're, they're being positive. Um, but to be real honest, there is some skepticism that we're not, you know, if we can't do trade and we can't offer market access, additional access to the U.S. market, um, then many of these countries may look at this initiative and think, you know, what's in it for me? Um, you know, when I negotiated the TPP agreement, for example, Vietnam agreed to very strong rules on IPR and on labor, but they didn't do that in a vacuum. They did it because in return, they were getting access to our um, apparel and footwear market in, in the form of lower tariffs. So that was worth something to them. And they were willing then to move on the labor provisions. But if you don't have those tariff cuts, um, it, it, the onus will be on the administration to convince these countries there's enough in this initiative for them. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how it unfolds. And, you know, based on conversations I'm having with the administration, um, you know, I'm pretty encouraged. I think they're taking this really seriously. They're putting their minds to it. And um, you know they've heard um, what the other countries are saying. Now the other big question, and this gets to the Taiwan question, is who's going to join this initiative, and what are going to what what will be the um, you know the, the the rules for joining? And this still is being worked out, but it looks like there will be some kind of option for countries and economies to kind of opt in in certain areas and not in other areas. Um, and so it's conceivable that, um, you know, like on supply chain work, you know, Taiwan could participate. But I can tell you the politics of that, you know, the global politics of that, particularly for some of our trading partners, is going to be very difficult. And they'll probably get a lot of pressure not to join if Taiwan is a part of, of any of these what they're called modules or baskets of this Indo-Pacific economic framework. So I think this is one of the topics that the administration probably is working through now. Who do we invite? Under what conditions are they invited? And how do we deal, frankly, you know, with, with the Taiwan situation? Even if we want them in, does that mean then we may lose, you know, three countries in Southeast Asia from joining, for example? I don't know the answer there, but I think one thing I would say is a lot of these agenda items for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework 
are the same issues that are being addressed in those dialogues I mentioned earlier, the dialogues with state, the dialogue with commerce on supply chains, and in the TIFA as well. And so even if Taiwan were not formally a member of, of the IPEF, that's what we're calling it shorthand, or certain baskets, you could see a situation where we would do kind of parallel work with them in all of these areas. But again, um, I think the administration is going to really need to think through how they deal with Taiwan, you know, visa, you know, in, in the broader context of this initiative. Okay. Are you worried that the administration is uh, basically making the, the so-called spaghetti bowl of overlapping and contradictory agreements around the region just worse by proposing yet another new framework? Or is that... Uh, is this, do you think there's actually some real value added here? So I think there's value added as long as, and what I've been advocating, like it, it's all centralized in one spot in the administration. Okay. If there are different agencies running at different speeds, doing different initiatives, then you lose, you lose the impact of it, frankly, but you also confuse our trading partners and you kind of weaken the outcome. And so, you know, Secretary Raimondo and Ambassador Tai appear to be the two co-chairs of this new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that hasn't been announced. Um, Secretary Raimondo has really become more of the kind of the public face for this. Um, but my understanding is USTR will be in charge of like the trade work. But um, for me, I think what's really important is even if there are different agencies working on different pieces that they all fall under someone who's like in charge of the whole initiative mm. or else I think you, you know, there is a danger, not only that there's like a spaghetti bowl, but also that this initiative doesn't have the umph and the power and the ability to look like a credible alternative to China's application to join CPTPP. Okay, um, I do want to turn to some questions from the audience as well here, and I, um, I'll, I'll try to uh, combine a couple of these in one. Um, we have a question about, well, ju just generally the role that the semiconductor industry plays in U.S.-Taiwan uh, economic relations, and uh, it's, it's quite striking how important TSMC has become to the U.S. economy as well as to the Chinese economy, and so wonder if uh, in the context of this discussion, if you could talk a little bit about uh, TSMC's role in these negotiations, whether it actually has a voice at the table in some of these dialogues uh, and uh, to what extent concern about semiconductor supply chains is actually driving the conversation uh, between the two capitals. I think it's, it's an, obviously an urgent issue um, we are very dependent on TSMC, and there's just been an overall kind of um, awareness in the United States how vulnerable we are with respect to a lot of different supply chains. And so um, the supply chain work that really commerce is leading in the semiconductor sector has been, you know, very high profile. TSMC has, you know, been participating in a number of these sessions with Secretary Raimondo and others. Um, obviously, um, the U.S. is very happy about TSMC's decision to, um, you know, build at least one fab in the United States, if not more. Um, but this is kind of a critical area where we really need to work together very closely with Taiwan 
And frankly, I think it has kind of worked to Taiwan's advantage because I think many more people in the United States now understand how critical and important a strong economic bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan is. Okay, great. Uh, so I want to ask um, if you could clarify for the audience as well, um, the RCEP, the Regional Economic Cooperation uh, Regional Comprehensive, Comprehensive Economic, Economic Partnership. Economic. Yes, thank you. Um, so so alphabet our, soup in this yes, world. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, I admit to being a novice in this area. So RCEP versus CPTPP, is there a significant difference? China's in one, it's not in the other. Uh, in Taiwan, this often gets um, thrown about as a, uh, if you want to criticize the Thai administration, you'll criticize them for not uh, participating in RCEP or not finding a way to uh, make nice with China so you can get in and Taiwan is losing out. Other people will defend the Tsai administration and say CPTPP is really where it's at. That's where Taiwan's economic future lies. Um, what is your own view on the difference? And, and is, it, uh, is it important that Taiwan is, is really dependent on Chinese approval to get into C to RCEP? Is that a, a big concern? So, I mean, in, in short, RCEP is way weaker than um, CPT, both with respect to the coverage of the rules. For example, RCEP does not include chapters on labor, environment, or state-owned enterprises. Mm. Also, with respect to the depth of commitments, you know, if you look at the IPR chapter, for example, in CPTPP, it's probably twice the amount of pages than the RCEP IPR chapter. Um, and also with respect to the exceptions um, and um, long transition periods that countries are granted, the ones that you know could negotiate or could show that given their development level, they couldn't accept all these obligations from the get-go. Um, also, many of the RCEP provisions are not subject to dispute settlement. So, you know, if you know you, you can't get sued, then you could argue that, you know, enforcement, be, um, excuse me, implementation becomes more aspirational than critical. And the market access commitments, like the tariff commitments, are a lot um, weaker. There are exceptions for sensitive products in RCEP and much longer staging periods. But even all of that, I also I still believe that RCEP is an important regional agreement. It sets up common rules among 15 countries in the Asia Pacific. Um, they have a common rule of origin. They're going to have common customs documentation, and I think this will lead to further integration between these countries of supply chains of their economies. Mm -hmm. And I think it will just over time become a group of countries that will get together periodically because the agreement calls for lots of meetings, not only on implementation of existing rules, but they'll talk about setting new rules, right? So we're not at the table for that. I mean, Taiwan isn't either. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, it's easy to say it's a weak agreement. It's not really going to change anything. I think we need to watch, you know, watch this seriously. And again, and Larry's going to ask me, what do you mean by take it seriously? But I'm going to say we need to take that agreement seriously. We shouldn't just kind of say, oh, weak agreement won't matter, um, whatever. Um, I'm not really aware of the history of whether Taiwan, you know, the RCEP negotiations began in 2012. 
um, and didn't end until last year when the agreement was signed, a year and a half ago when the agreement was signed. Um, you know, I, I'm not aware whether Taiwan and, you know, tried to get in at that point in 2012. I, I just don't know the history there. But clearly, in the last years, they were, you know, China was not going to let them in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they have a, you know, if you're in Taiwan has a problem, they're not in CPTPP, they're not in RCEP, they are in APAC, they are in the WTO. Um, but, um, you know, I think they're losing out as they watch all their neighbors kind of, you know, establish these kind of regional ties, which I think will encourage more trade and investment between those partner countries of both agreements. Yeah. So we did an event on this in uh, 2013 and looked at both RCEP and the TPP and Taiwan's potential role in the two. And the uh, overwhelming answer from our Taiwan uh, participants was that China would veto any Taiwanese uh, negotiations to enter RCEP because they were the big player in RCEP. And uh, the, this was during the Ma administration too, so a much more China-friendly administration in Taiwan. And even under those circumstances, uh, the requirement from Beijing was that Taiwan needed to enter into political negotiations before RCEP was even on the table. And so, uh, to my mind, RCEP is just a complete non-starter. For Taiwan. I mean, that was that was my take. But then I'm also thinking, you know, 2013, um, the FTAs with Singapore and um, New Zealand were concluded. So right. maybe there was right. more of an opening then. But um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we are just about at time. So uh, I wanna use the last minute here just to thank our guests. Uh, just to remind our audience, you have been listening to uh, the speaker series of the uh, project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region at the Hoover Institution. I'm Karis Templeman. I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and I've been speaking with Wendy Cutler who is the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute in, and the managing director of their Washington DC office. And we have uh, been really fortunate to have this uh, informative conversation today. I wanna to thank Wendy for joining us and uh, wish all of you a great uh, rest of your day and week, wherever you may be. Thanks a lot and we'll sign off here. Thank, thank you, you, Wendy. Bye.